This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the Motive Labs podcast where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. Welcome back. This is Paul Papadimitriou from Motive Labs, and I'm joined today by Doug Huggins. Hi, Doug. Hi, Paul. So, Markov, that's the name of your company. But first question, isn't that, and I don't know nothing about mathematics, but isn't that a Russian mathematician? It is, yeah. We were looking for a name that would mean something to people who were doing the kinds of work that we were doing. And, you know, Markov processes appear in financial applications all the time and seem like a good name. So what is the kind of work that you're doing then? We uh, provide quantitative models for people in the financial markets, particularly uh, people in the front office traders, salespeople, research analysts. And the company got its start a couple of years ago. My co-founder and I, Christian Schaller is his name, had started a research firm to provide trade ideas to people that we'd worked with in the fixed income and commodities markets over the years. And a surprising number of times we were getting people offering us money for the models and data we were using in our research notes. And we were making enough money doing this without even trying that we thought it might be useful to spin this off as a separate company. You know, the research firm is FCA regulated. And if we spun off a separate company, we could take investment that qualified for the special treatment that the UK, you know, has for people who invest in these types of companies. And so we mentioned that uh, project to a former colleague of ours, Henry Rashad, who uh, we met uh, years ago at Deutsche Bank. He said he was retiring from Deutsche and was going to be seeding firms like ours and, and offered to put some money into the firm. That's how we got our start. I think you are doing a little bit of Googling, quite the master in fixed income. You've written a book? That's right. Christian and I met at Deutsche about 20 years ago. Christian went to Tokyo, came back with me when we had a chance to move to AB and AMRO together, moved back to Tokyo, and then at some point wanted to come back to Europe and said to me, Look, I've been away from Europe for a while, and I'd like a calling card, a way of reintroducing myself to the European market. I'm thinking of writing a book, and he asked me if I'd be interested in co-authoring it with him. I always wanted to have written a book. I never wanted to write one, but I wanted to have written one. So I, so I said yes and put that book out, and uh, it's been quite useful. It gave us an opportunity to start this little business I mentioned, and it is nice as a calling card. You know, if you show up to a meeting and hand someone your business card, that's one thing. But if you can show up to a meeting and hand someone a book you've written, that's another thing altogether. And it was a fun project, and we still get people contacting us about it. And it was a, an effort well worth the time. Back to Markov, can you tell us a little bit more of what type of actual services you provide with, for instance, traders from the office? Yeah, well, we like to say we provide research as a service. And the idea there is... Um, we like to get the information and analysis people need at the right place, at the right time, to the right people, and at a cost that makes sense for them. I can give you an example. When Kristen and I moved over to ABN AMRO in 2001, we were responsible for providing client-facing fixed income research and analysis. And uh, one of the ways we did that was uh, via a website. And at the end of every day, we would post PDF files to the website, and we had quite a team of people whose job was to produce the C++ libraries that would generate these reports, and we had a big data licensing agreement with Bloomberg, our data provider. 
And this information would go onto a website and then clients would be able to access it and they'd, they'd get ideas for their own investment based on these reports in some cases. But sometimes what would happen is somebody would call us the next morning and say, you know, I, I'm looking at the reports you posted last night and I particularly was interested in this one, but I see you run it with five years of data. Could I see what it looks like if you run it with 10 years of data? Or they might say, I see that you run it with German government bunds. Could you run it with French OATs? Or um, they might want us to change some assumptions underlying the analysis we've done. And we would rerun the numbers and we'd make another PDF file and we'd send it to them via an email. And they might come back with yet other suggestions as to how we should change the analysis. And we'd do a couple iterations. And depending on how many suggestions they had, it could take 24 hours for us to give them what it is they actually wanted. Under this model, where we provide research as a service, we're able to put those analytic tools into their hands. So if they want to see the analysis using French bonds instead of German bonds, they can just use that data and instantly update the analysis. If they want to see five years of data instead of 10, they can make that change and they, they see the results instantly. And they're doing it in a cost-effective way. When we were at ABN AMRO, we were paying Bloomberg for a data license. The client was paying Bloomberg for a data license. But we had to pay Bloomberg yet again a large annual fee for a data license that would allow us to show that data to clients via this client-facing website. Well, now the client's data license can drive the analytics. We make very effective use of the data licensing fees by putting the models into the client's hands in a way that enables the client to use his own data license to drive those analytics. Other advantages, under the old model, we were necessarily aware of what the client was looking at. And some clients don't want us to know what they're looking of at. Course. Under this model, we never see what the client is looking at. All the analysis happens on the client's desktop and we never see it. Oh, so everything happens there. You never even see receive the data anonymized. Basically, everything happens on the desktop. Well, in the version of the app that's available on Bloomberg, that's the way it works. Okay. Uh, another advantage, if we provide analysis that informs a client's investment decision... We have to be FCA regulated. Of course. But if we provide a tool that allows the client to do the analysis himself, the client needs to be FCA regulated, but we don't. So that's one fewer party that needs FCA regulation, lower cost to the system as a whole. From our perspective, this is a very effective, efficient, cost-effective way of getting the right analytics into the right hands at the right time. And ideally, it supports the client's investment process better than the old model. Yeah, from PDF and email to research as a service is quite a journey, actually. I've noticed by also looking at your website that you provide augmented intelligence. Augmented intelligence. I didn't say artificial intelligence. <laughs> uh, it's a buzzword, the latter one. And a lot of it, and I think you agree with me, a lot of it is uh, algorithms that have been requalified and rebranded as artificial intelligence because that sounds something very appealing. Can you maybe start by telling us the difference between what you feel is augmented intelligence and artificial intelligence? And do you provide any type of artificial intelligence within your model? Yeah. So from our perspective, artificial intelligence is when the computer is making the decision and augmented intelligence is when the human is making the decision, but with the assistance of a machine. So for example, in the old days, people would play chess against each other and they wouldn't have the assistance of any computers. And after a while, people started uh, being able to bring computers with them to chess competitions. 
you know, now we're to the point where the humans have become superfluous. The, the computers play each other and, and no human can keep up. So there's been an evolution in that. And only chess. Yeah, in many games, actually. And, and it's been quite interesting to see the advances there. So our perspective is that we're providing tools that enable humans to make better decisions than they would without these tools. But we're not trying to provide tools that make the decisions instead of the humans. Now, you asked if we provide anything that would actually be characterized as artificial intelligence. And we are starting to do that. And the story is that as we talk with clients and prospective clients about the tools we make available, sometimes they'll ask us, well, why doesn't your tool just tell us what the optimum solution is? Why, why are we having to get involved at all. And it's a little bit like a chess player saying, well, why do I have to be involved here? You know, couldn't you have the chess program just play the whole game without me? And uh, we received that question enough times. I mean, the, the initial answers we would give people were, well, your problem may look a little different than someone else's problem. You may use, for example, a different measure of risk than the other guy uses. And so coming up with a one-size-fits-all solution is maybe not the best idea. The other issue was that it's actually quite hard to do that in some cases. But as computing algorithms have improved and our ability to address those kinds of issues have improved, we've been able to make some progress there. In particular, we've been able to identify optimal trading strategies for certain types of statistical processes. So if somebody says, okay, here I've got a textbook statistical process for some instrument I'm trading, what's the best thing I can do? Well, in the past, it was difficult to answer that question. Now we've got a pretty good answer. We allow the computer to converge upon what it thinks is an optimal solution. And that's not the same as a mathematical proof that we've come upon the optimal solution, but it gives us a pretty good degree of confidence that we've come upon the optimal solution. So we have made a lot of progress there. And the question now is, how do we bring that to market? Because it's a little more difficult to deliver that to people than it is some of the other tools we've come up with. And that's because of this one-size-fits-all problem. The question we're working on now is, can we provide enough flexibility in the form of an interface that allows people to ask those kinds of questions of these apps in a way that reflects their own unique risk preferences and investment mandates and those sorts of things? One thing you just said is very interesting. Is people still need to ask the right questions. You still have to bring maybe your right strategy before it actually becomes something valuable. If I start, I'm no trader, if I start using your tool, am I not asking the right questions and then my results will be useless? Well, with the tools that we're making available through platforms like Bloomberg, people typically don't have that problem because we've pretty well defined the problem space, so to speak. In other words, there are a couple measures you can use to model the risk of a trade and there are a couple measures that we provide for measuring the return of a trade. So there is some flexibility there, but it's organized in a way to where you don't really get lost. You don't have to worry about whether you're asking the right question or not. But in general, your point is a very good one. And it reminds me of something that Einstein is reported to have said. So apparently he said that uh, if he was given one hour to save the world, he'd spend the first 55 minutes defining the problem. Huh. We're big fans of that approach. I think part of what goes on in AI these days is people come up with very impressive tools, and then they look to see if there are problems that can be solved with these tools. Yeah. And in some cases, the attempt to solve the problem looks a little bit like a person using a hammer to drive a screw into a piece of wood. 
that's not really the right tool. If you hit the screw long enough, you'll drive it into the wood, but that's not really the best solution if what you're given is a screw for joining two pieces of wood, for example. So our approach is to try and spend a lot of time defining the problem, and we may spend you know, more than half the time actually defining the problem before we set upon a solution. So whereas I think a lot of AI these days and a lot of machine learning in general is focused on the development of tools and then working to see if we can find applications for the tools, our approach tends to be centered on problems and seeing if we can either find existing tools that already solve those problems. And when we can't do that, we're happy to try to develop new tools that do solve those problems. It's not a debate today, but what you just said also reminds me a lot about the debate around the use of the blockchain, trying to find uh, problems to solve with a solution that is not fully clear what it will solve in the end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and what you said about AI, we see companies like Microsoft and others developing, I was about to use the term off-the-shelves AI solutions, not truly off-the-shelf, but so I'm going to feed it with data and I'm going to try to find something there, but having not maybe spent these 55 minutes uh, beforehand. Do you have a, a lot of competition? Other players are doing that, whether it's augmented or artificial intelligence for specific problems like the ones you've defined? Yes and no. So in the space in general, there are lots and lots of people who are working to design very clever, sometimes even sexy machine learning, AI-oriented tools for solving problems in finance. So from that perspective, there is a lot of activity going on. And there are typically 10 papers a day, new papers written on applying some machine learning technique to financial markets or financial problems in general. Our approach is not to wade into the most heavily populated parts of that market. We try to tackle areas that are not getting a lot of attention for one reason or another. So for example, the first app that we've made available on Bloomberg is called Strategy Simulator, and it does what it says. It allows people to simulate the ex-ante performance of specific trading strategies. Well, if you think about the process of generating trading profits, you know, trading profits, if you're going to calculate them on a spreadsheet, for example, you take the price change, let's say you're trading once a day, you take the daily mm -hmm. price change and you multiply that by the position size at the beginning of the day, and then you just add up all those daily P&Ls. Well, a lot of work has been spent over the years on predicting price changes. And that makes sense because if you're unable to predict price changes, there's no basis on which you can expect to make money. But people haven't spent a lot of time thinking about the position size management. So uh, given my view, given my sense about likely price changes, what sort of position should I be having at various points in time? How should I manage that? How should that change as prices change? And uh, that just hasn't received a lot of attention. So here's sort of the simplest formulation of that problem. Let's imagine that somebody comes in and has a laptop with him and he says, guys, I'm going to simulate a simple mean reverting process, and both of you can trade against that process in a simulated manner on my computer here. The only thing is you have to come up with your trading policy or your trading strategy in advance. You give me some mathematical formulation, and I'm going to program it into the computer, and we can simulate you know, 20 years worth of daily prices in the space of a few seconds, and then we'll see which of you ends up making more money with your particular trading strategy. It turns out that even for a simple process like that, there's not general agreement about what the best thing to do is. If you go read the academic literature, there are all sorts of approaches that people have taken. 
but there doesn't seem to be general consensus as to what the right approach is. So we provide people a tool that allows them to assess what the right approach is for them, given their risk preferences, their investment mandates, etc. But we also think we are making progress on the more general problem, which is if what you care about is a sharp ratio, for example, what kind of trading policy or trading strategy can you apply in that case to get the best results? You know, it's surprising that there hasn't been more attention paid to that issue. More of the attention has gone into predicting price changes. Both are important, but to get back to your question, we don't want to wade into the most crowded part of the market, which would be predicting price changes. We see an opportunity to add value in the part of the equation where we focus on position management. Now, that's not the only thing we do, but that's a good example of how we're not trying to just compete in the most competitive, crowded parts of the market. When you started this, you said that people were downloading these PDFs and asking you, can you rerun this with different sets of, of data? But were you also trying to solve a problem that you had? Meaning you offer this for clients, but you also run yourself. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. We, we do some trading ourselves and uh, all the tools we develop end up being used by us as well in other parts of our business. We may have a slight advantage over some of the other people that are active in this space in that sense, because unlike someone who's doing it at an academic institution or someone who isn't doing it and putting their own money behind it, we're actually using these tools for our own financial benefit on a regular basis. And if you're eating your own cooking, you, you know, it's, it's, uh, we tend not to come up with solutions that are impractical. And actually what happens sometimes is we might try a solution thinking that it makes a lot of sense mathematically. And then when we go to implement it, find that it takes a ridiculous amount of time and it's just impractical for any kind of real world application. And if you don't actually go through that process, you miss out on that. I can tell you one story. When I arrived at Deutsche Bank in 1997, the first project I was asked to work on was to uh, model swap spreads. So that's the difference between government bond yields and swap rates with the same tenor as the maturity of, of the bond. My boss handed me a number of academic papers that he had, and I started by reading those. And I thought, well, I'll see if I can calibrate some of these models. So I implemented some of these models and tried to calibrate them to actual swap spreads that we observed in the market. And it was impossible to do. The differences between the default risk of the two counterparties in the swap that were required to fit the swap spreads at the time were so ridiculous that I thought, well, the people who wrote these articles never actually tried to put this in practice. They, they wrote an interesting academic article, but clearly if they'd ever tried to implement this in the real world, they would have realized that this just doesn't work. It's not usable. But sometimes you only learn that if you actually put it, it into practice yourself. And, and, you know, that's one of the benefits that we have. You know, when you go through university, you, you learn, you know, the world of perfect information. Will there be a time... If everybody has access to this with a very high level of precision, the margins become almost inexistent because everybody has the same information. Yeah, well, there are different categories. So sometimes what we do involves exploiting market inefficiencies. And the more capital that's devoted toward exploiting those inefficiencies, the greater the tendency for those inefficiencies to disappear. And, you know, if at some point the inefficiencies disappear, what happens is people stop deploying capital uh, toward those inefficiencies, and then the inefficiencies start to appear again. And so you reach some sort of an equilibrium where there's some amount of money to be made, but it's not so large that it attracts a huge amount of capital. And, and you know, you're typically going up and down around that equilibrium over time. But then there are other opportunities that are more structural and 
don't go away. So for example, I mentioned this Bloomberg app that helps people assess good or in some cases optimal strategies given their view about a particular instrument they're trading. Well, there's no reason in theory why those tools should become less effective if more people are using them. So to give you an analogy, let's imagine that we went into the business of uh, selling orange juice you know, mm -hmm. down in the square out in front of your building. So we go to the market and we try to buy oranges that contain a lot of juice. And then the goal is to squeeze the juice out of the oranges and to sell it to thirsty customers. Well, part of our, our profits are going to be determined by how good a job we do at squeezing the juice out of these oranges. Of course. And in this analogy, what we're saying to clients is you're in the business of finding good trade ideas, but we can help you squeeze more profits. More out juice. Of, more juice out of each idea with these tools. And uh, there's no reason that that should cause other people to be able to squeeze less juice from, from their ideas. You know, if you're more efficient, it doesn't necessarily mean that other people don't have good opportunities going forward. You know, I, I mentioned these two categories. There is sort of a third category where if people pursue the opportunity, it might actually make the markets not more stable, but less stable. So, for example, momentum trading. So um, in a situation where a price of something goes up and that increases the demand for that thing and people pay a higher price for it. And at some point, presumably that process has to end. And sometimes it ends in the formation of a bubble and then the popping of the bubble. And I'm not suggesting that all momentum trading falls into that category, but that's an example of something that we wouldn't necessarily think would go away if more people get involved. In fact, there might be a period of time where the opportunities increase the more people get involved. Since you just mentioned the word people and more people getting involved, what's the edge of people against the machine here? As in, do you think machine will be a great equalizer? That's a good question. And we, you know, we were talking about chess and chess computers and humans playing chess in conjunction with computers. And The way I tend to think about the problem in general is, you know, you've got a laptop here on the desk and uh, between the two of us, we've got two brains. So question is, what sorts of problems would we want to tackle just with our brains? And what sorts of problems would we want to tackle just with your laptop? And what class of problems would we want to tackle via a combination of our brains and your laptop? So for example, if you told me you had a young child and you wanted to come up with a little poem or something to tell your child at bedtime, Chances are we would just use our brains for that. We wouldn't try to get the computer Correct. involved. Yeah. On the other hand, if we were trying to come up with the prime factors of a very large number, we probably wouldn't use our brains for that at all. We'd probably rely entirely on your computer to Absolutely, do that for us. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's a whole class of problems in between. And for me, trading is still a problem that's best tackled by combining brains and computers. So the optimal combination is not 100% computer or 100% human brain. It's something in between. And over time, we might see that shifting. And it might be different depending on the, the investment strategy. So, you know, we're talking with some people about systematic investment strategies that we've uncovered by virtue of research we've done in other areas. And in those cases, we're making very little use of human brains, at least once we've initiated the systematic investment strategies. But we also work closely with people who are discretionary traders, so they're using their, their brains all the time, but they could use a little help. If someone needs to set a stop loss level or someone needs to set a profit target, they may be doing that on the basis of the probability of hitting the stop before hitting the profit target or the probability of hitting the profit target before hitting the stop. But those probabilities are difficult to calculate by human brains alone for a couple of reasons. One, probabilities tend to be nonlinear, and nonlinear things are difficult for human brains to think about, but also they're compound probabilities. You know, you've got two events there that you have to think about. So there's no reason that someone needs to 
tackle that problem just by staring at a chart and using his brain to figure out what makes sense. He can make use of the computer to calculate those compound probabilities and then incorporate the computer's calculations into his own decisions about how to tackle that particular investment opportunity. And still on people and this uh, tension with uh, technology, are you finding it easy to find people to actually help you create these augmented and artificial intelligence tools? Well, yes and no. We've been fortunate in being able to work with very good people. That's the yes part. There are plenty of good, talented people in London in particular, and, and we're fortunate to know those people and to be able to work with those people. But at the same time, some of those tasks are very specific. So the task might be, we've got a set of algorithms we've developed, and now we want to make them available to people on a particular platform, using a particular language, certain protocol requirements, et cetera. And there are people who are great at that. But then there's the bigger challenge, and that is asking the right questions or asking the questions that are going to have the biggest impact on the client's business. And that's a much more challenging type of person to find. It typically requires a lot of experience. So half the people you come across just wandering around Canary Wharf will not have spent enough time in this business to have that level of experience. They'll get it over time, but it's going to take some time. And so you've limited your pool quite a bit right there. The other problem is People who have that ability typically are already very well paid at financial institutions that can afford to pay people a lot of money. So to tempt people like that away from, you know, large banks or large hedge funds is very difficult. So at that level, again, we're fortunate because we know a lot of people and some of those people are happy to work with us on those sorts of issues. But it's not as if that particular part of the talent pool is just, you know, overflowing and, and we've got our pick of people. No, it's actually very difficult to find those that'll genuinely move the needle on a client's business. You just said it's really hard to tempt people out of large banks, as an example. But you moved out of a large bank because you mentioned maybe <laughs> an AMRO and others. So yeah. maybe because we know we have a lot of entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs even coming for corporate listening to this. What would you say to someone who wants to do this? I'd say uh, think about it carefully because it's a lot more work than you'll realize. And uh It can be painful and frustrating in, in ways that your life at a big bank never was. And you may complain about what it's like to work for a big institution, but a big institution provides a lot of benefits and security and support that you're not going to get on your own. You need to think about how you deal with uncertainty. You need to think about how you deal with risk. If you're not the kind of person who's comfortable with living with those on a daily basis, you should really rethink your decision to become an entrepreneur because you know, you're going to have a lot of uncertainty, a lot of risk and a lot of feeling your way along and learning as you go. So if you're comfortable with that sort of thing, it can be a great experience. And if you're not, it can be, it can be pretty painful. Where are some of those, some that you've experienced yourself? Or were well, you one yeah, of the lucky so, ones? Well, no, we, we've had our share of difficulties and frustrations. I, I'd say the number one thing is the sales process. We were fortunate working for large banks in that we already had a lot of customers They weren't captive customers, but from the perspective of a research analyst, they had already chosen to do business with the bank. And of course, we played a role in keeping those customers happy and keeping them engaged with the bank, but we weren't out there signing up new customers typically. That wasn't our responsibility. And if you were responsible for having to go out and get new customers, that's quite a different way of interacting with clients. And so We read a lot of what had been written about sales funnels and pre-qualifying clients and things you read on places like um, was it HubSpot and Salesforce.com. And there's, there's tons of places where you can go and read people blogging about how to sell software as a service. 
And most of that we found to be useless or worse than useless. So it, it, we wasted a lot of time. And, and actually, even some people at these bigger platform providers would give us advice that in the end turned out to be really ill-informed. I was getting advice from people on how to sell who had never sold like that before. Frankly, they didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> That's a big lesson right there, actually. <laughs> yeah, and as quants... We tend to think that everybody we encounter is going to be rational and they're going to make decisions on a purely rational basis. And at one point we thought, well, all we have to do is explain the merits of our product to people and they'll just line up to purchase yeah, they'll it. Yeah, get it in the lineup. Yeah. But it turns out that that's not how people make decisions, even people who think that they're those sorts of people. Uh, you know, I can give you an example. What happens is we typically go demo our product to people. And so if I were doing a demo with you, I'd start off the demo by saying, hey, Paul, what instruments are you looking at today? What are you trading? And you would select an instrument for us to analyze. And so we'd load that up into the app and I'd say to you, okay, what sort of strategy are you currently following with respect to this instrument? And we'd set that up in the app as the baseline strategy. And then I'd take over for a little while and I'd say, okay, let's see if we can improve upon that. And so Paul has seen how this, this app can make more money for Paul. Yeah, should be so, convinced by now. Yeah, and so, so by the time I get back to my office, Paul will have you know, clicked the button on Bloomberg. He'll be an app subscriber and job done. Well, it turns out that people still have a lot of questions and there's a lot of uncertainty about what it is they just saw. So in this example... It's true, I let you pick the instruments, so you can be sure that I wasn't picking an instrument that looked especially good, you're the person who picked the instrument. But you might think, well, maybe we just got lucky. And if you'd picked some other instrument, it wouldn't have worked so well. So you've got some uncertainty there. Also, you saw me, that was me using yeah. the app. I wrote the app. Could you do the same thing if you were the person in the driver's seat? That's another uncertainty. And so what actually sells apps like that, we found, is word of mouth. So let's say that you're an early adopter and you're happy with the, the app and its performance. And, and so you're out having beers with friends one evening and the subject of trading comes up and, and you happen to share with a few of your colleagues in the industry that you're using this app, that it's working well for you. And the next thing you know, we've got a couple more subscribers, a couple more clients. So the key for us is identifying people whose temperament is such that they're natural candidates for being early adopters and then doing a good job of explaining the benefits of the app to them and then making it easy for them to tell that story to other people. To become your evangelist in a way. Well, that's right. But that's not our background, naturally. We're not, we're not salespeople by background. And we are able to, to hire people who have a sales background. And um, I'm very confident that we'll get to where we want to be. If you look at adoption rates for new products, they typically follow something that looks like an S-curve. So there's a very shallow period where the adoption is pretty slow. And then as the early adopters get on board and start to disseminate word about the product, you've got this part of the S-curve where the adoption rate is greater. And then eventually you've kind of saturated your potential and then you get back to another portion of this S-curve that's relatively flat. I know there's a threshold, yeah. So then our challenge is to do those things that push us through that natural evolution. Where do you see yourselves in five years? Hopefully, you know, very <laughs> on the, high on the, the beach. Curve, but yeah. I'm on a yacht with a, with a margarita. <laughs> no, um, well, in five years' time, we would like to make a suite of models available to the marketplace on both uh, professional platforms, Bloomberg, Reuters, that sort of thing, but also on retail platforms. So the, the kinds of problems that we've been talking about, those are problems that retail investors face as well. And the question there is, 
How can we do it so that it's very easy for people to use? That's both the challenge and the opportunity. Well, Doug, that was fantastic. I could go on for hours. I'm going to wish you <laughs> first to get up to there, but also to get to the beach at some point. <laughs> thank you so much for having spent time with us today. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motor partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.